0: just like to say that this was a difficult episode to watch, that's probably all I'm going to say about that. There's not a lot of behind-the-scenes info for this one. More or less, it really boiled down to they really wanted to look at what was going on with the Bolana situation since the last several episodes, and by which I mean, like, 10, 11, 12, ep- quite a few episodes, have been completely ignoring this particular plot thread. And I do mean completely ignoring it. But also, uh, Roxanne Dawson herself was actually having a meal with several of the people, uh, with several of the producers, and the idea of trying to discuss a rather sensitive topic at the time, and hell, it's still a sensitive topic to this day, Uh, they started on the idea of self-harm, actually, and then that broadened into what we actually got for this one. But one of the things I find questionable... I'm just going to start jumping right into this with my notes here. One of the things I find questionable is they went out of their way to make it Chakotay, not Tom. Now, that makes a degree of sense, since I think Chakotay should have been very close to his people. He, he's the kind of person who would be. He's the kind of person who would be very, very attached to his, his crew. So that that makes total sense. What bothers me is that Tom would not. Tom only really gets two scenes in this entire episode where he gets to show concern for tourists. There's the time he's just, Gotta build the shuttle! And... That doesn't strike me as someone who is caring, or loving, or even a friend at that point. Even Janeway tends to show, uh, well, I guess I should say Janeway shows the same amount of concern that Tom does. And, <laughs> what? So that always has kind of bothered me. But, um, yeah, I also want to say that Roxanne Dawson completely nails this part. Absolutely, 100% completely nails it. Now, this is still oh, on? This is still Star Trek. This is still television. So we still have the same problem we usually do. Things usually have to be resolved by the end of the episode, and um, that's not how this kind of thing works. But I'm going to save that for last. Let's go through my notes. Um, there's something they do very cool. Actually, they show Taurus in the holodeck going, you know, going for an orbital skydive. And then they show her canceling the program. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, if you're in mid-fall... Especially with the safeties off. What exactly does the program do when the t- program's terminated? But it actually shows us. It literally suspends her, stops her her fall, her momentum, and then and then she can just readjust herself. That was a cool effect, and I like that they showed that off. I also like the idea that it requires Borg-level technology in order to be able to go into a gas giant. Even by Star Trek's age, where they have massive amounts of incredibly advanced technology there are certain things in nature that are simply just and it takes a lot of effort and uh, and, you know technology in order to be able to overcome that i like that i like that it's good i also i'm not sure if i like this or not but it's fascinating that they spend this whole meeting saying we're not going to be able to build the new shuttle tom we're not going to be able to do this thing tom you've been mentioning it so many times tom by the way if you've been paying attention in on screen it's been mentioned exactly once in the previous episode. I mentioned that and praised that there. But in this episode, they act like he's been talking about it for forever, saying, like, oh, we're so tired of hearing it, Tom. Now, that's, I'm not saying that's inconsistent. What I'm saying is, why does the rest of the crew constantly say, oh, you're terrible? When See, on, on the one hand, I'd be like, of course that would make perfect sense, if not for certain other facts. But Tom did the basic design specs for this shuttle in his spare time. This is the thing that the rest of the command staff, the, the, the chief of staff, the people in in the briefing room said, shouldn't be done, couldn't be done, wouldn't be done. And Tom has already accomplished the first several steps, in his spare time. By himself. Now he had help in in the form of the technologies that were given to uh, you know helped with uh, with regards to two, but with regards to seven, but still, that I mean, at the one hand, that doesn't for once I don't think that's Tom being too good. I think that's more the rest of the crew being too bad. I think that just about any of them could have accomplished what he did, and the fact that they were being naysayers is what's really bothering me about this. But yeah. As an aside, I love the design of the Delta Fire. It looks cool on the outside, it looks cool on the inside, and one thing Tom says really resonated with me, and I'm sure several of you will uh, be with me on this. Tom actually makes a comment that he's tired of tapping panels. That he, does, he wants tactile sensation for his interactions. Um, yeah, I totally buy that. And in fact, not only do I buy that, that is literally how I feel. I have said many, many times I do not enjoy playing video games on a tablet because of that exact problem. There's, it's just this. There's nothing there. It's, it's non-responsive. It's not precise. And there's no tactile reactions, so I don't really have that mental, that just click that I need in order to know what I'm doing. And so I hate doing it. It's why I don't play uh, mobile games or, or or pad games. I prefer having this. Or, if you prefer, just to show we're not being biased, this. Yes, I have both of these on my desk. What do you want from me? It's my job, damn it. But, yeah. And so I like his, his talk about, I want some kind of knobs and buttons. It's also funny because on the, eh, it's actually fully understandable in the... Forgive me for putting this in kind of a weird way. The homogenized society that Star, Starfleet, specifically, that, that the Federation is, it would make sense that that kind of thinking would never actually see fruition. I'm, I bet there's plenty of people in Starfleet who would prefer some kind of tactile feedback, but everyone else is like, no, no, we must go with the, the panels look, and we must continue using the panels because that's what we've been using and that's what everyone else wants to use. And so it just kind of... It's the crab thing all over again. It just pulls it back down. I also... uh have to admit something as an aside, with all the tools that you have at your disposal, even just on Voyager, the idea of building a ship, even just designing a ship, sounds like a lot of fun. Being able to actually craft it out, map it with the computer, get onto the holodeck, literally shape the design. You know, all all those tools and abilities that you would have would be a lot of fun, I think, in order to design a ship. But that is, of course, just me. Now, I want you to pay attention to something, because... They encounter the Melon, and and Janeway is basically the opposite of diplomatic. She's actually downright rude to the gentleman, uh, and I'm not saying I'm not exactly taking his side, but I want you to keep that in mind. And during one of the conversations after which they've discussed, he, she literally says "ugh," like just with disgust. Again, not necessarily blaming her for that. But given that mindset, and given a few other facts I'll talk about, why didn't they just go into this with guns blazing to begin with? Voyager is a match for a Malon ship. We've seen this, and we'll see this, and it's logical, especially since they've got the tech advantage. So why didn't they just deal with the Malons aggressively? If they're so disgusted by them, and if they're so unwilling to actually deal with them diplomatically, what the hell? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of trolley, which is why this kind of bothers me. Janeway's overall approach is to stand there and to be like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. And then the, the person they're bothering has to swing back first. And then, okay, then we'll have provocation enough to actually do something. But here's the weird thing. After a bit in the show, the Malons attack them. Literally attack them, cause them to lose shields, cause them to, to be damaged. After that, they start shooting weapons at them. And at both of these circumstances, voyagers, you know, they officially have the capacity to respond to provocation, and they're saying, nah. And then they get into the gas giant, and the two shuttles are there, and they actually start firing back at it after they've been provoked at this point for, like, the fourth time now, I think, third or fourth time, depending on how you define it. And they're just like, nah, okay, fine, now we'll fire back at the ship. But not to damage or injure, just to make them go away. (laughs) Why deal with this? Why deal with the stress? Why deal with the potential to lose your crew? Why risk your crew's life and put yourself at a tactically inferior position, which you're already not exactly at the top of... Ta- you're not exactly overwhelming them with force or whatever. You can't just be sitting on superiority. You have to be careful. So you abandon all tactical superiority for absolutely no benefit. Why do that? That just bugs the crap out of me. And, it, it, and it's probably because it's artificial tension. It's there just so the Malons continue being a threat. And it's there to to add to the tension of the race aspect, whatever. Um, now, the other thing that I want to comment on, this is probably a good time to talk about that because this is one of the last things I have to talk about, the race side of the plot. Both plots are interesting in their own right. As much as I complain about the race plot, as I just did, and will again... Um, It's an interesting concept, the idea of literally the conflict, rather than being an armed one, being a technological one, being this, we have to build it first. It's actually an engineering one, specifically. It's an engineering race. And I like that concept. It's taking the the idea of the threat to the ship in a new direction. And then, of course, they make the threat literal by having them attack them, again, throwing away their advantage. So both the creators and the actual characters threw away their tactical advantages for no reason. Either way, I like the idea on the base of it, and of course I like the idea of the other plot, but we'll get to that in a minute. Final thought about the race plot. I I can't tell. Like, I literally can't tell. I am literally simultaneously enjoying and shaking my head at B'Elanna's solution. The the, the Delta Flyer's in there, and it's starting to have whole breaches, and everything's going to hell, and so she temporarily... Oh, God. Temporarily... Wields welds the uh, a chunk of metal over it. I like that. Very low tech. Very immediate. Very patchwork situation, but which would work. Again, temporarily, only for a few seconds at most. But, but she even says that, so I'm with that. And it doesn't last long, so I'm with that. Then she sets up a power conduit with a phaser to make a makeshift force field right off the fly. which And, and again, it's something I like and don't like. I like it because it's a simple, very low-tech, very no-technobabble solution. Really, when you think about it. It's just, let's get a force field over this area right now, bam. Probably the kind of thing that should have been built into the design of the ship, just like it's built into the design of the actual ships. But, you know, they might not have a time for that, so that makes sense. So her making this... Make, yes, I'm with it, I'm with it. The the, the thing that made me shake my head is something about her turning a phaser and a, something from a transporter beam into a force field that, that happens to perfectly go across an area that she hasn't even scanned or anything like that. I don't know, something about that just bothers me. I don't really know how well to put it. Other than the fact that it felt like... It was just trying to show that is a brilliant engineer without the writers being able to be brilliant engineers in order in order to make that work. So it felt a little bit, I'll just put it bluntly, fake. So I like it, but at the same time. Alright, let's talk about Bolana.. Ah. I like the Neelix and Taurus scene. I keep mentioning these scenes with Neelix I like. It's it's a common thing, and will continue to be a common thing from now on, now that they finally uh, stopped being stupid with Neelix. There, there's still some exceptions, but whatever. And um, the scene between the two is, is really, really well done. Both actors completely nail the row. He is cautious, trying not to push, Definitely concerned, and willing to take, you know, literally willing to put himself at risk in order to draw her out. He is he is extending the hand. I've often said that in real diplomacy, you have to be willing to be hurt to reach the other person, and that's what Neelix is doing, clearly. But Roxanne Dawson portrays her side perfectly. Dead. No emotion. No engagement. She is literally going through the motions. Because she should socialize, and she should eat, and she should interact with other people. And that is what she should do, because that's what you do. And you could just see it in her actions. She's perfect. Literally, she portrays it perfectly. And trust me, I'm speaking from experience here. There's no... Because too many actors would probably do it like a puppet. you know, Or trying to be too clipped, or sounding angry. But that's not how it works. So that scene was amazing. And... Her emulation of behavior, behavior is what sells that scene for me, I think, and uh, it was really, really nice. I, I have to comment on something right now. The two plots, again, are good in their own. Uh, the two plots also don't gel, like, at all, really. There's no real connection between the two. I mean, yes, I know Balana ends up resolving part of her plot in order to come in and save the people, and that's cool and all but doesn't really connect the plots thematically or with any kind of narrative significance. It's it's just as if these two completely separate stories just did this. That's not really connecting them, you know. But that is the problem with the A-plot and the B-plot format. And I've talked about that enough, so let's just leave that alone. I'm trying to think how to phrase this. One of the other things that I both like and shake my head at in this episode is I like that they make it a point that Balana has been this way for months. What I don't like is they haven't actually been willing to show that. I looked it up. Season 4, episode 15, the episode Hunters. That's when they got the news that all the Maquis were dead. That all the Maquis had been killed off camera, actually, over in Deep Space Nine by the Dominion. Now, I'm saying this harshly to get across a point. That is a horrible thing. Starfleet was the enemy of the Maquis and didn't want that. The Cardassians wanted that, of course, but they were the only ones. Nobody else wanted that. And the Maquis were not, you know, captured, were not brought to justice. No, they they were just slaughtered. They were just massacred, with an extremely small group of them surviving, as we find out in Deep Space Nine. And those on Voyager, who might as well not be Maquis at this point. Lord knows there's no Maquis to be a part of at this point. Point being... It was something that should have had an impact on Voyager, and only has an impact twice. Once in Hunters, once in this episode. I've given my thoughts about how that should have been more impacting back in the Hunters rumination. I don't want to recover that too much. But what I do want to say is, why, didn't, why weren't they willing to earn this? Why weren't they willing to, to put it on the, on the camera, on the screen? Sh- yes, Taurus has not been on camera very often, but she's also been completely normal. Nothing different about her performance whatsoever. And by the way, I was paying attention this time. I had that impression from previous times of watching this series multiple times. But this time I was actively watching how Balana was being portrayed. And no, there's nothing different at all. She's just Balana. And yet in this episode, like someone hit a switch, all of a sudden she's acting depressive. I would have liked it if they had shown that over the course of the previous two episodes, so that you could tell, so the viewer could tell, there is something up with Balana and we're not sure what it is, and then it pays off in this episode. I think that would have worked a lot better. <sighs> now, what Chakotay does at the end of the episode, towards the end of the episode is simultaneously amazing and horrible. Very, very dangerous thing he did. And it's understandable why he did it that way. It's very Chicote. It is very much the perspective of him, the leader, to make the hard decision, the hard call, and to take command of the situation and, and try and make it work, force it through. It's, it's very much his, his style. I've mentioned this several times. But what he did was still very, very risky and could have basically made things a lot worse. Let's talk about depression really quick. Just really quick. There are lots of kinds of depression, but I like to categorize it into two things, speaking from my own experience and my own studies. There is chemical depression, and there is situational depression. Now... Chemical depression is obvious, really. There is something literally wrong with your brain, temporarily or long-term, that causes you to be in a depressive state, a state where your body, or your mind, I really should say, is simply not acting, reacting, or functioning the way it should be. Situational depressive, well, that's a little bit trickier. Um, Saying, you know, oh, I didn't get the car I wanted, so I'm depressed, that's not really depression. Saying one of my favorite aunts died and it's been hitting me pretty hard and it's put me in a slump that's situational depressive it's not really a matter of severity so much as it's a way as a matter of the exact way it hits you there's a difference between grieving between sorrow and depression in fact actually that second example i gave isn't really a good example i don't want to give you and i i said that because i caught myself in mid sentence i was going to give you a literal example from my life and I decided not to, um, but there you know something that has genuinely brought down your all your whole life can cause you to be situationally depressed, right Here's where things get tricky. Your mind is very adaptive. the whole human body is one of the most adaptive machines I've ever seen in my life, and your mind will adapt to being depressed, it will acclimate to it, it will get used to it. And it is possible if you are situationally depressed for a long enough period of time to become chemically depressed because your brain chemistry has altered itself to adapt. Okay? This is dangerous. and sucks. But let's talk about something else. Because chemical depression, well, in real life, there's not much we can really do about it. Not really. We're still, honestly, we're still only on the barest edges of figuring that one out. There's, I mean, there is stuff we can do about it. There, there are treatments, and we've come leaps and bounds forward from where we were about 20 years ago when we used to just give people terrible drugs that made things worse. Um, <clears throat> that one's not speaking from personal experience. Thank God. My mother was a pharmacist and refused to uh, give me any of that stuff, which is great. Um, I knew a few friends who were. That was not so great. And it was terrible. Moving on. But... The point here is chemical depression, it's, it's hard to fix chemical depression. But situational depression can be fixed. And again, I am generalizing, but there's two real ways to do that. One, well, three, I really should say. Uh, one is to fix the situation that caused it in the first place. To remove the obstacle. In some cases, that is literally not possible. I, I used my fake example earlier of the ant being dead. That is, that, that, that's something you couldn't fix, right? Or how about uh, a situation where you are entering a depressive cycle because you're having a really hard trouble finding a job and have been for months and nobody's taking you and it's a bad market and you're behind on your bills and you're having trouble feeding your family. That sounds a little more accurate than the ant situation and is also solvable. That is a situation that can be solved. And if you succeed at solving it, it is very likely that depressive state will start to recede. And you'll start to, to uh, fix yourself. And if any imbalance has been entered into your brain, it is likely that possible, I should say, that that will r- right itself, okay, chemically. Assuming you even entered a chemical state. It takes a while. You can't be depressed for like a week or a month and have chemical imbalance in the brain. We're talking something that has to happen for a long freaking time, okay? <sighs> Relatively speaking. But the other, uh, the second way to deal with situational depression is to grieve and move on. This is the hardest thing that to do really. I, I don't even have words for it. there's no explanation for how it works. you basically it's like you're fighting someone like in, in a boxing match, okay and you cannot win. and so the solution here to use to stretch this analogy a bit is to put your arms down and just let them pummel the crap out of you and then hope you can get up afterwards. Actually, I think that analogy works really well, because that is basically what dealing with it means. There's no guarantee it's going to work. There's no guarantee you're going to be able to deal with it. Because that leads me to the third way you deal with situational depression. You don't. You try to deal with it. You try to fix it. You try to take it on the chin. You fail. You're broken. Congratulations. And that can suck quite a lot. This is why I say what Chicote did was very dangerous. It is very, very possible that he could have literally broken Bilana with what he did. Thankfully, he didn't. And she got over it too quickly because this is a TV show. But what he did was still tactically... Well, that's the wrong one. What he did was still the right thing to do as a friend, if I'm being blunt. There is no resolving that situation. All their friends, all those people they cared about, their family, they're dead. And there's nothing they can do about that. And... She has been in situations in her life where she has been abandoned multiple times, and there's nothing that can be done to actually prevent that, per se, other than to simply continue to be her friend. There's nothing that can actively change that, nor change her mind on it. She's always going to be waiting for that sword to fall, the sword of Damocles, right? So you can't fix that. And if you let her be broken, well, that's terrible, especially since you care about her. I'm not even talking about the chief engineer thing. She's your friend. So what is your option? This is why I say what Chakotay said was right. It was the correct decision to make. Because there was only one option. Force her to face it. Shove it right in her face. And say, here, look, this. This is what happened. And this is horrible because to continue that analogy, that's like holding your friend there while they're getting the crap beaten out of them by the other boxer. But it is also being there in the, box, in the ring to hold out your hand to help them to get back up after the beating. That's why that was the right choice. And the way they both portray their lines, the way they talk to each other is perfect. Because, and Bellana comes back with it perfectly. She's not, you know, frightened. She's not scared. She's not hurt. She is in complete emotional lockdown. She has literally reached that, that horrible state where you just find it as if you don't care. And I say as if because this one is speaking from personal experience. You do actually care. But it's like there's this layer of crust, this 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 cement that has f- formed around your emotions, around your mind. And so you're just looking at things with this dullness. You're just going through the motions. Nothing, None of this actually matters to you. And that's why you get so the way you are. You don't even get that emotional. You don't even get that strong. And you lie and you talk your way around it because it it doesn't matter. But you do actually care under all that. You just can't really tell because you are in emotional lockdown, you're in mental lockdown. I'm sorry for going into this too much, but honestly, I don't have much to analyze here other than praise, because they did an excellent job of portraying this. This is one of Roxanne Dawson's favorite episodes of Voyager, and it's easy to understand why. And she really did just hit this one out of the park. She did a phenomenal job, and she deserves the props for having done so. So I suppose I'll cut the episode off there. Uh, Next week, hopefully, we'll be talking about something slightly less close to home. See you around, guys. B'Elanna, why are you intentionally trying to hurt yourself? I don't know. Are you trying to commit suicide? (sighs) No. Then why? Because... Because if I sprain my ankle, at least I feel something. What do you mean? (laughs) I'm not trying to kill myself. I'm trying to see if I'm still alive. I don't understand. When you look at those corpses, how do you feel? Sad. Angry. Maybe a little guilty that I wasn't there to die with them. Not me. I don't feel anything at all. Valana, the Maquis were like our adopted family. I can understand you trying to block out that kind of pain. You don't understand. It's not just the pain. I don't feel anything. Not about my dead friends, not about Tom. You, my job.